this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. The identification season of Just Science will focus on many of the different aspects of identification in forensic investigations. A majority of these interviews were recorded at the 2018 International Forensic Educational Conference in San Antonio, Texas. This conference, held by the International Association for Identification, represents a diverse and knowledgeable membership that meets annually to educate and share techniques, methods, and research into the various forensic science disciplines. In episode one of the identification season, Just Science interviews Leslie Hammer, former president of the International Association for Identification and the current chair of the Education Committee of the IAI. Listen along as she discusses pattern and impression evidence collection and the future of IAI. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. We're here today kicking off our season related to the International Association for Identification Conference in San Antonio. We're actually recording this in October of 2018 after the conference was over, but with one of the people who is one of the most influential leaders within the pattern evidence community that is represented at IAI primarily, and that is Leslie Hammer. Leslie is the former president of IAI and is currently serves as the chair of the Education Committee of the IAI. She uh, had been a section supervisor with the Alaska State Crime Laboratory and is now in private practice as a footwear examiner, and I believe you do some other forensic science work in your private practice, Leslie? I focus on footwear and tire tracks. Welcome to Just Science. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we're really, uh, one of the things that we're doing here at IAI is that we're going to be looking at about seven or eight different kinds of folks who are going to come through and talk to us, sometimes about casework, other times about some interesting kinds of things going on research-wise. So tell me, how long have you been involved with IAI? Since 1994. Wow, and you were an entering forensic examiner at the time? or I was. I was brand new at the Alaska State Crime Lab, and one of the first things my supervisor had me do was sign up and go to an IAI meeting. When you were a, a new scientist coming into IAI, what I mean, kind of what did you expect to achieve out of IAI, and were those expectations met, or what was kind of your experience? I did not know what to expect coming into the IAI, but I found a few people who right away recognized me as a kind of a new person standing off to the side, and really reached out and got you know, helped me decide what to go uh, see, what to listen to, became connections, and that's always been the most important part of being involved with the II to me, are those connections that you make. Were you in footwear and tire track at the time, or did you start off, most everybody starts off in latent print, it seems. I did. I started off in latent prints and crime scenes, and then did drug analysis for a little while, and then footwear and tire tracks. So I started almost 20 years ago now. Okay. So what brought you into footwear and tire tracks? I know it's a big deal in Alaska. I think Alaska is one of the few places in the country where footwear and tire tracks is done fairly routinely. 
Yeah, well, there's a lot of variety across the country, that's for sure. And it waxes and wanes. But with the snow, I mean, in the mud, anytime footwear tire tracks can be really obvious, of course, they get, get a little more attention when they're versus when they're latent, say, in dust. So where is IEI right now? So IEI, 100 years old, which is un- unbelievable, really. And, you know, I don't think people just realize how important IEI has been over the years. The FBI only even started to convene crime lab directors in the 1970s, really, on a regular basis. And so for a long time, IEI was like the place to be to get training and to communicate with other forensic scientists. Yes, it's played that role for over 100 years now, which has been extremely important to the forensic community. And the main mission of the II really is centered around education. II has a certain disciplines where it really tries to emphasize its work, especially education, training, and certification kinds of activities. Yet the II focuses on pattern evidence and crime scene disciplines, latent prints, of course, footwear tire tracks, and just crime scenes in general bloodstained pattern, and the list goes on, and then some of the newer disciplines like uh, facial identification, mm-hmm. and of course, just recently, including a provisional committee for DNA evidence. Well, that's really exciting to, to, to bring DNA into, into IAI. The other discipline that's really interesting is forensic artists. So we actually have a podcast about forensic art coming up, part of the IAI season, which uh, is really interesting, and the different elements of forensic art because there are actually several different kinds of ways of using forensic art and casework examination. IEI really is is a major, major home for a lot of those disciplines, and especially if you want to try to get that kind of training work. Right, especially if you want the hands-on training and focus on the pattern evidence field, for sure. IEI is the place to go. So one of the things that IEI also does is it certifies examiners which you all have been doing for a while, but you're actually improving some of the rigor of those processes as well. What we're working on is establishing another level of accreditation for our certification committee. So anytime as anyone knows it goes through a accreditation process, it involves tightening up a few things here or there, but for the most part, you know, our certifications have been robust for a long time and will remain that way. Mm-hmm. Does the education committee also put together the conference itself? I'm mostly a committee of one. Okay. That's not really true, but uh, I'm the only education coordinator. But I who, who I rely on are the discipline expert committees. We call them science and practice committees mm-hmm. of the II. And we have some amazing volunteers in each of our disciplines. And I rely heavily on them to come up with the program for the II. And believe it or not, we'll start working on that uh, in December, mm-hmm. and maybe even a little earlier. So we work on it almost year-round. I think it's very appropriate for you all to be looking at DNA as a provisional uh, part of the of IAI, and hopefully that'll become a full-fledged discipline within IAI. It is, after all, an identification science in the end, not that much different in terms of what the outcome is, what you're trying to get at, than fingerprints. I, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that collaborating with DNA uh, analysts makes sense at the IAI. We certainly uh, have a lot of people that come as investigators and look at overall crime scene information, and, and DNA is critical to that. We also are an excellent venue for hands-on education, so training crime scene collectors to collect DNA evidence better is a role that the DNA committee can play in ensuring that they're getting the best evidence in. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, you all do an awful lot of crime scene work, and you all are a major venue for the CSI folks to, uh, to participate in as part of their professional development. Yeah, that's right. They're a huge contingent of our attendees. 
Now, your particular discipline, of course, is well, at least what you're practicing now, is uh, footwear and tire track. And I think it's a really interesting time in footwear and tire track. Uh, there's always been a fair amount of national engagement, but I think it's at a new level now because I know FBI, for example, is looking at trying to facilitate some information sharing across the country in, in footwear. Tell me, do you think it's an exciting time for footwear? <laughs> I think that that is a very interesting development, and what I hope is that it it promotes a lot more interest in footwear evidence. Footwear evidence, we are always, uh, as footwear examiners, beating the drum that it's extremely underutilized Mm -hmm. in this country. So any time that we can put more investigative tools out there, more tools for examiners can generate more interest, but in the end, it needs to be collected to be effective. And that's been a really a different battle for different areas of the country. Some areas are very active collecting footwear evidence, and some areas are just not. Well, I think one of the models for footwear, at least in my mind, is the United Kingdom. In Lancashire, they actually did a fairly extensive study showing a very large percentage of their case clearances, and it was definitely over 20%, were related to footwear matches. And, of course, the London Met now is very routinely collecting shoe impressions, uh, outsole impressions, from every arrestee, at least in many of the boroughs, uh, using automated technology. Yeah, that's my understanding, that they're they're collecting standards when people are arrested, Mm -hmm. as well as just a lot of activity collecting impressions from crime scenes. And then they have robust databases that are available to their different agencies where they can intercompare and link scenes. So there's a lot of activity in the UK around footwear. That's my understanding as well. It solves a lot of crimes. They have an excellent software system that they use for uh, sharing of information, both for from a forensic intelligence perspective, but also a reference collection perspective. And Alaska actually uses that same software to do their work. But we don't really see a whole lot in the United States of folks who are really using footwear to the full extent, especially at the crime scene. It really is the key. It's really, I think, at the crime scene that it's most important to do the collection. Well, like I said, I, I definitely, there are areas around the United States that, that do routinely collect it, that enter it in databases, that actively try to use it for scene linkage, and they see successful results, but we have a lot of work to do in the area of footwear collection in the United States, and work on using databases and effective use to having it solve crime, provide intelligence before an arrest is made, even instead of just as a reaction to an arrest and just comparing a suspect's shoe with a crime scene impression. I remember the best talk on this I ever saw was at IAI, and that was Mike Gorn. When he was in Sarasota, he's at FBI now, but when, when he was in Sarasota, he collected some amazing data with respect to impact of really efficient crime scene collection of, of footwear impression evidence. Yes, what Mike did in Sarasota is a real example of of how someone could come in and really push footwear evidence and push for its use as an intelligence instrument. And I don't want to speak for Mike. He's got a lot of information about that. But just in my conversations with him, he had a lot of success there. And, of course, now he's at the FBI, so hopefully he's going to support other agencies to to follow that kind of lead. So uh, one of the other things, of course, though, is that some of the automated collection is a lot easier to do collection of reference data now. So there's the Eversprise system out there, but there's a lot of a lot, a lot of folks who are kind of using you know new methods and it's becoming easier to collect, digitize and and be able to do at least at the type classification level that kind of work. 
across, and it records in great detail a shoe print impression, sure makes the potential of collecting uh, volume reference samples a lot more likely to occur. So I talked to Leslie uh, before the podcast, I was telling her this story, so I'm going to tell it to everyone else. My daughter is taking a forensic science class in high school. One of the things they did on their first project was to get out like a plaster thing, she said it was, and do footwear impressions that way. And I'm like, sounds like it'd be all right for like doing type work, you know, to say, well, this is this type of shoe and it matches with the different shapes and that kind of thing in the shoe. But, but it's always struck me, it isn't just, you know, her class doing plaster, but it always struck me that's a very, very difficult process to be able to get the detailed information that you need to be able to individualize a shoe especially given the fact that if you don't get it soon after because of the wear issue. Sure, it depends on how bad the damage is that you want to look at. So there's, there can be very fine detail that can be used to individualize that might wear off right away. You don't get the shoe the same day. Um, but then other deeper cuts can last for quite a while. But definitely that time differential between when the crime scene occurred and when the shoe is, has been seized is considered in cases and it's an important consideration. How does the examiner deal with that persistence issue? Because like in firearms ID, they sort of discount where there are mismatches between the evidence and a reference firing reference item because there's going to be variations from shot to shot for a single firearm, even if it's the same type of ammunition. And so they expect there not to be complete agreement. And so they, they look for is there enough agreement? They use the consecutive matching stria, some of them. Some others use other criteria. How does the footwear examiner deal with the issue of, I mean, there's a limitation to the persistence of the patterns that you see in a footwear impression. In a footwear examination, if you have the shoe and you're making several test impressions, of course, if you wore the shoe and walked right down a piece of paper with ink on your shoe, every single impression wouldn't be exactly the same. But there's important aspects of the features of the design and the features of the wear or the damage to the shoe that you would expect to be repeatable. So making that's the reason for making several test impressions and viewing those features and making sure that they are repeatable. And the other important aspect is examining the shoe to make sure that what you're looking at can be attributed to something random if you're using it to individualize versus some part of the shoe that's a class characteristic that's part of the design that came out of the mold. Yeah, and so that seems to me a very difficult process. One of the concerns in forensic science right now is just like, you know, human error, right? You know, I'd rather be cognitive bias, but it's also just perception. You're making a lot of, what you just described, there's a lot of judgments there that an examiner needs to make in order to be able to get through that analysis. I think that. That's why the repeat testing in an examination. So you have the shoe, you can make as many test impressions as you need to to come to your conclusion about if a feature is repeating in a way that you would expect it and in your determination of how much that particular feature is corresponding with the impression that you're examining. Sure. And of course, the other issue that comes into this, I think the human factors is the flip side of statistics. The, the more human factors is important, the less, I think, the statistics can help you. I, I know that there's some efforts. I think WVU, I think West Virginia is doing a, a project looking at footwear reference collection and doing a database and looking at this issue. But it seems to me almost impossible to quantitate the process that you're talking about 
I, I can see it at the type level, at the class, at class characteristic level. But even that's difficult because there's don't shoes vary in terms of like particular model or soul or even within a particular city or within a particular population that might be committing crime. Yeah, the variations on population of shoes, even just in class characteristics, so make, model, and physical size, are so variable that I've had many conversations with statisticians over the years trying to get some kind of approach that might make sense to a relevant database. And when you think about, even if we know how many shoes are manufactured and how many were mailed to a particular area, we still don't know the frequency with which they're worn, which ones have been thrown away, how many might have been ordered on the internet. So even if we have some kind of number, that might approximate. But as soon as we figure that out for one area, then we go to the next area. So Alaska and Hawaii are always good examples. You think about the different kinds of footwear that are in each place and how much more statistically significant a fishing boot or a winter boot might be in downtown Honolulu versus you know, a flip-flop uh, in Anchorage. So I think it's really difficult to think about how to even begin to approach relevant database when it comes to class characteristics in footwear. When it comes to the damage to footwear, there's an endless variety of ways that damage can be manifested on a outsole. But there's some ways and some people have made some efforts to approach that. So whether they're taking the approach of how statistically significant would one just small circular piece of damage be, just one small hole. Mm -hmm. um, that's been one approach that Rocky Stone took years ago. And there, I think there's some ways that we can go about looking at areas uh, where damage might occur and how likely, but when you try to translate that to then in compounding with designs and locations of designs, it's a, it's a really difficult question to answer. One of the things that's always struck me, I think the kind of the random things, like if you have a like a pin in a sole or a fishing hook in the, in the boot, <laughs> or whatever, those are, those are the hardest problems. Footwear examiners also look at kind of these striations that occur from wear as you're as you're uh, walking around, whether it's a random thing or not. I don't know whether anybody's there's, looked at that. Well, there's a little pattern that can develop that's just natural to the wearing of rubber called the Shalamok pattern. And that is an example of a very, it's a very small, fine feathering, which microscopically sort of looks like fingerprint ridges. And so that could be used to uh, individualize, and there's research to support that. but you think about how just a little feathering of rubber and how just in a few more steps that could change. That's uh, an example of a, a type of damage that might not be really robust in terms of still being there a few weeks later. And a lot of uniqueness, but not a lot of persistence, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, the other thing is, is like even with a particular model, these days the manufacturers, they might have uh, the same outsole on a variety of different shoes in terms of the model. Although I've read about this as a fellow out there who actually has a database of some of the more unusual shoes that people like collect as if they're prized possessions, right? And you can sell them on the secondary market for thousands of dollars. And, and so there's actually, like a, a, there's actually a market for those. And one of the things that's cool, I guess, in some areas, there are, you know, some of the folks who are involved in crime, that's their status symbol, right? They can't afford the large car, but they can afford the expensive shoes, and those are at least more individualizable in terms of like, at least to the type. 
the unusual types, and then you could say, all right, well, how many people are going to own this unusual type of Air Jordan or whatever it is? Well, when it comes to class characteristics, the important question is, is there even one more out there, often with, with footwear? So unless the shoe is handmade and has something original carved in the bottom, there could always be one more that came out of the mold that, that has the same class characteristics. Some of the popular designs get remade mm -hmm. uh, often, and some of them get slight variations to the design because they're popular. So, you know, we have the famous example of the Bruno Molly shoe. and It's famous within the footwear community, but I've never heard of the Bruno is. Molly shoe. Well, you probably recognize <laughs> the name O.J. Simpson. Oh, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of a shoe that was uh, limited production, more of in the handmade high-end type shoe designs. And so you'll have to read Bill Bozziak's book to get all the details of how he considered the Bruno Mali shoe. I've never read Bill's book on the Simpson trial. and We'll put a link uh, to the Amazon page for Bill's book. It's a very good example of what we're talking about, the consideration of class characteristics in an examination and, and when that can be really important to a case. Okay. Is it possible, in your view, for us to do a statistical characterization of footwear impression decisions at any level? It seems to me almost impossible Reliability matters, but and reliability of the number that you might report matters. Can we, could we come up with a? I don't know. If we can even come up with a reliable statistical measure. I hate to ever say never, but I think that first of all, it's very important to still think about it and and still try. And certainly, statistical studies are extremely important to supporting what we do. So I think we can do some scaled statistical studies that give us an idea of the value of a class characteristic, for example, but to directly apply them to casework, to be able to say, in this case, I plug this in this database and I have any kind of meaningful likelihood ratio. I, I don't see that happening just because of the variability of mm -hmm. shoe designs. I think that in the area of damage to the shoe or wear, same thing, we can maybe have some statistical studies that support what we do. And maybe we can use those together, the class characteristic studies and the random accidental characteristic studies, and, and use those together to support what we do and provide us more information. But I don't see us coming up with a, a database that we can really apply in casework in any kind of reliable sense. Again, back over into the human factors, where training crime scene investigators and training uh, footwear and tire track, because these are the same issues come up in tire track. Is there a difference in terms of the uh, tire track impressions in this regard and kind of the basic considerations here? I guess there aren't too many people who have ego trips over the kind of tires they put on their car. So you have. I don't know. There's some pretty fancy racing cars out there. But a lot of the basic principles that we're talking about apply to both, but we're in tires. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely making tire test impressions is a little bigger ordeal ah. than making them with a shoe. Right. So those cases are a lot more work. But uh, but the training of the footwear and tire tread examiner then is all the more important. But it doesn't seem like we have enough resources to do the training of the folks to uh, for the you know sort of the next generation of footwear and tire tread examiners. I am doing a lot of training these days, and I I really enjoy that stage of the career. We're passing on, encouraging the next generation. But I definitely see a lot more need out there for training than there are opportunities. And definitely a lot more opportunities for 
the evidence itself to be utilized more. Of course, that means training for the people collecting the evidence, training for the examiners to examine the evidence. And one of the big challenges to training footwear examiners, uh, for instance, if, if there's crime scene training and someone comes to a certain city and provides crime scene training, can fill a class with the locals mm -hmm. for the most part. But footwear, since we're so spread out, and footwear examiners also occur in many, it's usually a second discipline for people. Usually they're a latent print examiner or firearms or trace or question documents, and then they do footwear on the side. So you have the competition of the primary discipline mm -hmm. for a lot of examiners in terms of keeping their training up. And then also spread out across the country and spread thin between trying to keep up. For instance, all the trace examiners don't show up to the II. So there's a lot of challenges to footwear examiners coming together and coming together for training. Sure, sure. So I hope there's greater demand for footwear examiners but, and tire treads, but that's really going to only happen when law enforcement really starts to value footwear and understands the value of footwear and therefore encourages crime scene collection. And it's hard to know where that starts because, of course, if there's successful cases, people get more interested. So if footwear is a big part of solving a crime, then there's going to be more interest. But if it's not collected, it can't really have a lot of success. So, right, the cycle has to start somewhere. You know, I, I hope that my gravestone isn't she tried really hard, but footwear still isn't collected a lot. <laughs> right. Maybe that's the note on which we should, we should end in some respects. But, you know, it's like every crime. Well, not, not every crime, but the vast majority, somebody's wearing shoes. Yeah. It's hard to perceive the crime that occurred where someone doesn't walk through the scene. Right. So to have it never collected, I think that would be a really difficult way forward to justify. One of the other uh, podcasts that we're doing at, at the IAI, a case study where blood spatter made a huge difference in terms of establishing the facts of the evidence. And it really struck me in some respects, too, because crime scenes are messy places, right? And when you come into a scene, it takes a different kind of analysis to say, wow, I need to make sure that I'm looking for that footwear impression. And it may not be obvious, just like blood spatter, sometimes it isn't obvious that that's going to be what's going to make that make or break an entire case where, you know, there are four different murders at 10 different places or wherever it is. You know, and you need to have that awareness to make sure that folks are doing that collection, even though it's not obvious at the moment when it's going to be relevant. Right. The awareness and the skills and techniques for detection. And a lot of the types of evidence that we have at scenes can be latent, not just friction risk skin, but footwear. A blood drop might be hard to find. Uh, fibers, all those things take skills and effort and technique and having the right materials and supplies. But in the area of footwear, the particular challenge is that while people are looking for evidence, they're usually walking over where, you know, the locations of the shoe print. So that is the type of evidence that almost always takes awareness from before you go into the scene. Well, Leslie, thank you very much for being on the Just Science podcast today. Thank you, John. And thank you all for listening to Just Science. We appreciate tuning in or downloading or whatever it is that you do to listen to the podcast. If you like what you've heard, please give us lots of stars and thumbs up on SoundCloud or wherever it is that you're downloading the podcast from. And make sure to tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science. Thank you very much today for listening.
Next week, Just Science interviews Suzanne Birdwell about the use of forensic art in recognition and identification. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Thank you.